I'm Kelly Drake, and you're listening to Hop In My U-Haul. In this podcast, I'll be taking you all around New York City and beyond to some really unique lesbian and queer spaces. You'll meet artists, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are all doing really inspiring work in their communities. Oh, and you might be wondering why we're in a U-Haul. Well, yesterday at the farmer's market, I met this really cute girl, and we're going on a date next week at this vegan restaurant in Bushwick. I'm so excited. I can't wait. I have a really, really good feeling about it. Anyway, let's hit the road. Hop on in. Tonight, we're in the West Village at the legendary lesbian bar Cubbyhole. On the corner of West 12th and West 4th Street, you can't miss its iconic green storefront. As if it wasn't clear from the outside, when you walk in, you can tell exactly how this place got its name. It's tiny. There are hundreds of little decorations hanging from the already low ceilings, which make it feel even tighter. Not that anyone's complaining, it just means that the cute girl at the other end of the bar is at most 15 feet away from you at any given point. It's a typical Friday night. Cubby is packed. I have never seen a space with that many queer women per square foot. When I was in high school, I thought places like this only existed in the L word. I'm entirely unsurprised to find the US Women's National Team soccer game on all of the TVs. You know, so you can see Megan Rapino from literally wherever you're standing. Now, tonight I'm here to work, but it's almost impossible to go to Cubby without meeting a few new people. There's a magic about the space that's just hard to put into words. People come here for a lot of different reasons. I'm looking for girls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much it. Yeah. I think this was my first lesbian bar in Manhattan, and I've had I've had a lot of good memories while I've, while I've been here. Actually, just it just makes me feel like I'm part of something when I come to Cubby Hole. It gives queer people a space to be exponentially themselves, it feels very much like a homecoming for queer women. I mean, I, I mean, and like everything now is online or like dating apps and things like that, but you know, it's so much nicer to go out and meet people in person, like meet face to face. The concept of a lesbian bar is not new by any means. The name Cubbyhole actually comes from a different lesbian bar that closed a few years before it opened, though the original was two words, cubby, hole, and in its current form it was combined to one, cubbyhole. The building it's currently in actually also used to be a different lesbian bar called DT's Fat Cat, which was run by the same woman who opened Cubbyhole, one word, not two. Or was it two? (laughs) The history of lesbian bars is fittingly a little complicated. That's why I talked to Gwendolyn Stegall. She finished last year at Columbia with a master's in architecture and an MS in historical preservation. She wrote her thesis on a spatial history of lesbian bars, which, by the way, is just the coolest thesis topic I've ever heard of. So I, I tried to define what a lesbian bar is in my definition and my thesis. And it was basically a place where they serve mainly alcohol. It's not just a restaurant and where the patrons are majority lesbians. And also a place that was a, a full time lesbian bar because there's all these places that had lesbian nights or lesbian parties. And so the problem with defining this so narrowly is you lose a lot of history. <laughs> like, for 
example, in the Harlem Renaissance and really through today, a lot of black and Latino, but mostly the black lesbians had parties at their houses and they didn't necessarily feel welcome in the bars. And so there was this whole other subculture that wasn't necessarily you know, at one place that was always, you know, a lesbian place that was always serving alcohol, which was my definition of, you know, the, the right. sites that I was covering. So, I mean, this is sort of a much larger topic. I want to make this into a book at some point. <laughs> and I'll expand on this section, you know, a lot more. But You absolutely um... <laughs> should. I just find it interesting that a bar is the place that the community rallies around, like mm-hmm. as opposed to a bookstore or even a coffee shop. What mm-hmm. is what what kind of role does the type of space that it is play in the way that community forms around it? Hmm. What's your take on that? Because yeah. I know there's not like one cut and dry answer. but No, that's an interesting question. Um, and I think that will also come out in the like book version of my thesis because, you know, I think that there is a whole other parallel history of lesbian space in general and the ways that lesbians try to find each other outside of bars. But, I mean, part of the reason why I wrote about bars and why other people have written about bars or why Stonewall is a bar and, you know, changed the course of LGBT history is because they were one of the places where gays were able to find each other. And, I mean, I'm not sure I have, a, like, a good answer about why that's the case and why that's still important. Part of it, I think, is that, especially in, the, like, the 30s, sort of as the world wars are happening and cities are growing, there are these, like, pockets of the city that are kind of seedier and more dangerous. The outskirts, um, not necessarily outskirts, because actually they were often in the center of a city, um, like Greenwich <laughs> Village, but they were these places where sort of nefarious activities could happen and where there was enough anonymity in a city to allow that sort of interaction and allow an entire sort of subculture to happen without even the like regular culture recognizing that it was there. And that lends itself very much to a bar, you know, like you're not going to have like a seedy, like, you know, bookstore. I don't know. I mean, maybe you are like, like, it's like, you know, part of it is about these like types of places that sort of emerged. And part of it is the again, like the eroticism of that, that like the the whole, well, not the whole point, but a huge part of it was, you know, to go to find somebody to love. And that even in straight culture is connected with bars, you know, like that is like once you have alcohol, you have a little bit more confidence to go up to somebody and, you know, talk to them, whatever. Right. Like there's a, you know, you don't go to like cruise at a bookstore. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you do. But in that case, you're a really cool lesbian and like I want to hang out That's with like you. That's like the most lesbian thing maybe. Yeah. But also like you have serious game if you're doing that. Like <laughs> if you can pick damn, a girl up at the bookstore. Right. Like, like the Strand. <laughs> that's where I get my ladies. Honestly, like <laughs> props. But me, I, you know, usually need a drink or two to, like, feel a little bit more comfortable right, right. or whatever. So, I mean, I think that that is also part of it. And I think that's part of why it's persisted to today is that, you know, people still want to go out. They still want to have a good time. They still want to, you know, feel different than they do sober and, you know, like have a sort of different kind of experience, which, you know, happens at a bar or a party. Just so we're clear, don't cruise at the Strand, okay? There are plenty of other ways to meet women in the city. It is very different, though, today than when Cubbyhole first opened. To get a little bit of the history, I talked to the owner, Lisa Medicino. 
She used to work at Cubby as a bartender, but when the owner passed away, she took over running the place. Why was it started as a lesbian bar? Well, originally in, in, in 1987, when it was started as a lesbian bar, I mean, that was really the only place that women had, and even men to a certain extent, had to go and meet people. You know, it was pre-technology, so it was really the only communal thing where you can go and you know everybody was like you and you can meet other people whether it was for romance or friendship so it 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 played like a really important role in that sense yeah I I always thought it was fascinating because like it's a place that I patronize because I'm a lesbian but it's a little bit deeper than that like we go because there are people that are like us there but I was interested to know like having owned it and worked there what why do you think it's so important as a space? Well, because there's, there's, there's so few of them left. And I'm happy to hear that you go and still support it. A lot of what I've noticed over the years, you know, working and socializing in this community is that for some reason, lesbians, when they get involved romantically, tend to go out less. And, you know, which is fine. Yeah. You know, I, I just think it's so important for young people to continue to support these spaces because that's what we rely on. Right. I, I don't think they realize it. I don't think, I don't expect that Cubby Holes be the first thing on their mind, but it really does take an, an effect, oh, a yeah. business, from a business point of view. I think also, I mean, being a young person who goes out, I don't really think about the history of the places that I'm attending or the people who own them, like... I think that a really interesting thing about people my age is that we're very interested in supporting businesses that we think are doing things right or, you know, are ethical um, or just in some way in alignment with how we feel about things. Mm -hmm. But we don't really look at the history behind a place and we don't see things like going to a bar as an act of supporting a community. And I, I don't know, that was just like my sort of motivation in doing an episode on Cubby Hole in particular is that I wanted to learn more about the history. Like, I've gone and I've had good nights there, but I didn't really think about, oh, it used to be this place, and actually another place is called Cubby Hole, and there were so many of them, and now there's so few. That's something that I've only learned by looking. People of the next generation don't realize how important it was to the generation before them, because it really was the only place that you can go. It yeah. was the only place you can meet people. It's something that we kind of can't And so comprehend. you take it sort of for granted. Yeah. Not yeah. in a selfish way, but just in like something that you're just not used to. Oh, well, what's the big deal? I can go here and meet people. I can go online and meet people. Mm -hmm. But it really was the only place you can go. And, it's, and it still provides a space where you're going to find other people that are exactly like you. And, yeah. and it's it's so important that young people still support it. So, but but I'm I'm glad to hear that you yeah you support. Thank you. Yeah. It seems strange to me that even as queerness is becoming more accepted, the number of lesbian bars has been declining for decades. I bet Gwendolyn could offer me some sort of explanation. You know, there was a time when Greenwich Village was like the center of LGBTQ life in the city, and people were actually living there. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, yeah, people would come from all around the city or like, you know, come from Harlem or people, you know, from Greenwich Village would go up to Harlem or whatever. Now, 
unless you're one of the really, really rich gays, which probably means you're a white man. Right. <laughs> you're probably not living in Greenwich Village. Like, yeah. it's just, you know, um, so it's still, you know, the center of a lot of gay life. And, you know, Stonewall reopened in the 90s. Like, there was still a market for a sort of gay, you know, subculture there. But uh, it's much more dispersed. And you can actually see that in where lesbian bars open. One of the earliest gay bars that I know about in Brooklyn is called The Starlight, and it recently closed, and it was this big tragedy because it had been there for, like, 50-something years. Um, But that was sort of, like, you know, a a pioneer, and then others started cropping up, you know, throughout the decades. And there was a point um, where—so the reason why Ginger's is in Park Slope (laughs) is there was a point in, like, the 90s where um, Park Slope was— definitely not yet gentrified um, and a lot of lesbians lived there to the point where it was called Dyke Slope. <laughs> oh my god. Right? I Amazing. love that. <laughs> um, and That's there was, incredible. There, was at least- there is so much history behind the landscape of lesbian bars but I'll have to save the rest for Gwendolyn's book. When it comes to Cubbyhole, what I think is most important is the sort of home that it's always been for the lesbian and queer community in the city. One of the most touching things I remember is um, on, on 9-11, um, I had been working there for oh, about a year, and um, I had, I lost, I didn't know it at the time, 9-11 was actually my shift, and I came into work, and I didn't know it at the time, but I, my stepmom worked in the towers, and she passed away. I didn't know it then, but I knew that she worked like on one of the high floors and I was talking to my father and all of the streets had been closed. All It was impossible to get around and whatnot. And this, this regular, this couple that was a regular, um, knew how nervous I was and how I wanted to be with my father. And they gave me their car. And they get, then they, we figured out, like, they gave me their car, and then there was a couple of other regulars, and we tried to figure out a route that I could get to them. And it took about an hour. Like, one, there was one street that, or one bridge that was open, and I had to go around to, because my father lived in Brooklyn. And we all had to go, and we figured it out, and they lent me their car, and I barely knew them. And I was just, I, it, was, it was just amazing to me. Oh, wow. Truly, they were just like, they were so concerned and they saw how upset I was getting and how I really needed to get. And another regular actually (laughs) got behind the bar until my replacement came. That's incredible. So that I can go. That's that's amazing. It was was so, I mean, I still still get choked up just remembering how, how amazing that was. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. And I feel like that's that's like the beauty of the community that this space creates. Yes. That's that's exactly what Cubbyhole is. That's exactly what it creates. Yeah. You know? And the other the other time was during the blackout in twenty twelve. I don't know if you were here. Were you uh, here? I wasn't, no. No. Well, all of the downtown was completely pitch black. Nobody had power. From I think it was thirty fourth street down. It was completely pitch black. So nothing could really be open because, you know, you had no electricity and no ice, you know, nothing. But knowing the community, <laughs> Tanya and I, the previous owner, thought, you know what? We should 
find a way to open, at least for a few hours, because I know people are going to want to get out of their house somehow. And and we did, and we opened for, um, let's say, maybe five hours, six hours during the day, and we served, like, warm beer and warm alcohol and <laughs> anything. <laughs> but everybody from the community came, and then we would get these people that just happened to see that we were open, and they would come in. This one guy with a guitar, and he would, like, because we couldn't play the jukebox, obviously. Hey. He would just, he would, sing, he would play the guitar and sing for us. <laughs> and then we couldn't, nobody had power, so we couldn't order anything to eat. And then somebody from uptown came in with, like, pizzas. <laughs> it was, it was, that, was an, that was another time. And we, we stayed open for those five days that the power was out. That's and every so day cool. we had everybody coming in. Wow. That's so cool. So it, it's really a space that people rally around. They do, yes. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. Wow. And, That's know. amazing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really special place. Yeah. Once again, I'm Kelly Drake, and this has been Hop in My U-Haul. Of course, thank you to WNYU Radio and Shane Patterson for helping make this podcast happen. The music you heard in this episode is by the band Recreational Mouthwash. If you liked what you just heard, you can check out my previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can find me on Instagram at hopinmyuhaul or on Twitter at kellymdrake19. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye.